0: Well, this past month, a hugely influential Christian preacher died. Reverend, uh, Reverend Frederick Casey Price died on February 12th from COVID-19. But who was Price? What did he preach? Why should we take note of his passing? Well, Frederick Price, even after his death, remains one of the most influential pastors across the world. In his early 20s, Prince became quite dissatisfied with his current spirituality until he began to be mentored by a pastor, Kenneth Hagen, who taught Price the basics of the prosperity gospel. And Price would go on to bring this prosperity gospel largely to the African, uh, African-American community. And he's famous for building a 10,000-seat megachurch in the heart of Los Angeles, So he's a massively influential man, particularly in American history. But now we have to ask ourselves, well, what is this prosperity gospel that Price preached? Well, the prosperity gospel is a unique teaching in Christianity that says that it is always God's will for his believers to have health, wealth, and happiness, or general prosperity in life. Here's a direct quote from Price. He says we need to realize that prosperity is the will of God and that it is God's perfect will that everyone will prosper in every area of life. Primarily, we are dealing with material and financial prosperity. And so the essence of this is that on the cross, Jesus not only took all of our sins, but he also took for us our sicknesses and illnesses. He took on the cross our debt, He took our anxiety, our fears. All of these things are in addition to our sins put on the cross. And so health, wealth, and happiness are ours for the taking. They're open to everyone because it is always God's will to give us these things. But how do you get this health, wealth, and happiness from God? You have to have enough faith. If you have enough faith, anything can be possible. In fact, if you declare something in faith, God has to give it to you. And so rather than faith being a a simple and pure trust in God, it becomes a type of magical force that you can use to twist the arm of God into giving you what you want. You'll notice as well that in order to get this, this prosperity, you have to do something first. Often it'll come in the form of, giving money to the preacher. If you give a thousand dollars, if you give ten thousand dollars, whatever the amount will be, if you give enough money, then God will give you these things. Notice that it's a very works based system in which you have to work to gain God's favor, rather than God giving it to us first. Now I don't want to dwell on the details of the prosperity gospel, but needless to say, it is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus dying for our sins and giving us eternal life, not temporary physical riches. And I find a real issue with this because it preys on innocent people. It says that, you know, it preys on the, the fears that we have. Everyone wants to have financial security. Everyone wants to be happy. And it manipulates these feelings to ultimately take money from people. On the surface, it sounds good and it sounds positive, but underneath that veneer is a very toxic belief. Let's just work under the assumption for a moment that the prosperity gospel was true. That if you have enough faith and if you do enough good works, God will always give you health, wealth and happiness. So what does it mean if in your life you don't have health, wealth and happiness? What if you're sick? What if you're in debt? And what if you're unhappy? Well, the prosperity gospel will tell you that the reason is you don't have enough faith. You haven't done enough good works. The reason that you are sad and in debt and sick is all because of you. It is your fault. If only you just worked hard enough. If only you had enough faith, God would give you the favor he wants to give. And so when anything bad happens in your life, the prosperity gospel will say it is your fault. Your circumstances could have been avoided, but you just didn't have enough faith. And look, this is not, this is not um, exclusive to any one branch of the Christian faith. This goes across all Christian stripes and colours. Even within our own church, people will say tragic things. At a funeral, people will say things like, you know, Bob could have been healed if only he just had a bit more faith. What a terrible thing to say to people in a time where they're mourning and grieving. Oh, you could have prevented this tragedy, but you weren't working hard enough. And we say things like this even within our own churches. Or, you know, if you just give tithes and offerings all the time, you're guaranteed that the bank account will go up. Well, that doesn't happen most of the time. But we say things like this, and we might not be necessarily adhering to uh, the prosperity gospel, but the sentiment is the same. The, 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 the theological framework is the same. And so it isn't just in one little wing of Christianity. This is, these are things that we say all across the board and even within our own church. And so we need to be careful because it's a very destructive thing to say to people. So what I want to look at this morning is, what does the Bible have to say about this topic? Is it our fault when bad things happen to us in life? Well, I'm just thankful that the Bible has a story in, in which in one day, one man loses his health, his wealth, and his happiness. And this morning, we're just going to briefly study this story to see what God has to say about this topic. So I'd invite you to join me as we turn to the book of Job. Right next to the book of Proverbs, Psalms, oh no, sorry, it's not. (laughs) The book of Job, and we'll begin in chapter 1. Right next door to the book of Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Job. Job chapter 1. And to begin with, the author of Job gives us a bit of context as to who Job is and what kind of man he is. And we're just going to read the first five verses to begin with. Job chapter 1 and verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now notice straight away, the author, we know something bad is going to happen to Job. And the author in the very first sentence is clear. Job is not a bad man. Job is a good man. He does his best to serve God. He's a righteous, blameless, upright man. So Job is not going to suffer bad things here in the story because of his wickedness or because he's offended God in some way. He is a good man. Verse 2, seven sons and three daughters were born also to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. Now, having seven sons and three daughters, it might not sound like much to us, but in that culture, the the larger your family, the more offspring you had was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of prosperity, a sign of status and wealth. So the fact that Job has so many children is a a sign of his, uh, his well-standing in society. And of course, if someone has that many sheep and camels and yoke of oxen and donkeys... They're doing pretty well for themselves. In fact, Job is called the greatest of all the people in the East. So Job is a very well-off man. He's financially rich, but he's also a good steward of his wealth. We're told later in the book that he uses his money to rescue the needy. He cares for the handicapped and dying. He brings orphans into his home. He fights for those who don't have lawyers in court. He's a good man, and he uses his wealth... ...to the benefit of other people. Let's have a look at verse 4. His sons would go and feast in their houses... ...each on his appointed day. And they would send and invite their three sisters... ...to eat and drink with them. So not only does Job have a big family... ...he has a family that gets along. They have parties together. And the, the, the description here isn't that they're frivolous... ...or over-the-top parties. Just regular celebrations of life that each of us have. Like a birthday or Christmas... We have times during the year where we celebrate with our family. So Job has a big family and they all get along. That's pretty rare. And finally in verse 5. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt sacrifices according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did regularly. So Job is a good spiritual leader in his home and for his family. He, he goes before God uh, on behalf of his family and asks that if there are any sins that they've committed that he doesn't know about, that God would forgive them. So he's a, Job is a good man. He's a good spiritual leader. He is a, one who tries to follow the law of God. And he's one who helps those in need. He's a good man. But then we have a picture of Satan who looks at Job and feels jealousy towards him. He feels anger towards Job. And Satan challenges Job and he says, Look, God, the only reason that Job follows you is because you've blessed him with all these things. If you took away these blessings, Job would turn on you in an instant. Just like that, Job would give up this righteous, pious, holy man business. And so God temporarily allows Satan to take away these things from Job, and even that is should give us comfort that God had uh, Satan had to get permission from God to do these horrendous things. And so God, for uh, for one occasion in salvation history, allows Satan to take away the things that Job has. Let's read uh, verses thirteen through to twenty-two. And we will we, we'll just read the devastating thing that happens to Job that Satan inflicts upon him and his family. Verse 13 Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen they were plowing, and the donkeys they were feeding beside them, when the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven. It burned up the sheep and the servants, it consumed them, and I alone have come to tell you. While that servant was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans, they formed three bands, they raided the camels, they took them away. Yes, They've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While that servant was still speaking, another servant came and said, Your sons and your daughters, they were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, when suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you then Job arose he tore his robe shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped and he said naked I came from my mother's womb naked shall I return there the Lord gives and the Lord has taken away but blessed be the name of the Lord in all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong what a intense passage of Scripture. First of all, let's take note of how cruel Satan is. Satan is given a temporary license to influence Job's life, and rather than have it take place over the span of a few days or a few weeks or months, he decides that he's going to throw every possible evil thing he can at Job in the span of about 10 minutes. As one servant is talking about the tragedy that's happened, another one comes and begins to tell him something else. I think it's four servants who begin to interrupt each other, one after the other, before the other guy's even finish talking. Another servant comes to talk about the tragedy that's taken place. Satan was very specifically cruel to Job in the way that he tormented him. But also notice the dedication that Job has to God. He worships God and he praises God's name even after he's lost everything. I think very few of us would be able to do that. It's very hard to worship and praise God when tragedy strikes our life. And I think, again, that's a testament to the character of Job and what a righteous man he was, that in losing everything he had, he worshipped God. Job was a good man. Now, of course, Satan is not pleased with this outcome. He fully anticipated that Job would give up not worship God. And so Job, uh, uh, Satan makes another request. He comes to God and he says, God, let me attack his health. You haven't let me attack him personally yet. And so God, once again, allows Satan a temporary window to do so. In uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with painful boils. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took for himself a piece of pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not also accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job has officially lost everything that he can. He's lost all of his wealth. He's lost his happiness. His children are gone. And now his health has been taken away from him as well. And yet as he's scraping his, these boils with a piece of pottery just to get some release, he says, shall we not accept good from God as well as adversity? And unfortunately, often Job's wife gets a bit of a bad rap. But I think if any of us were in that context, we would probably fall more into the camp of Job's wife than Job himself. Many of us would be questioning why these bad things are happening. We would be wondering, why, why are you keeping to this? Very few of us, I think, would have the, the courage and the dedication to God to, to worship Continue worshipping God in these circumstances. And take note that Job has done nothing to deserve this. None of it is his fault. But in Job's moment of despair, Job's friends come to comfort him. And for about a week, they're they're good friends and they, they give him support. But then they begin to open up their mouths. And what do you think is the first thing they say to Job? It's your fault. Job's friends tell him that Job must have done something to upset God. There must have been some sort of disobedience or secret sin that Job had done to make God angry at Job. They say, Job, your lack of faith is getting in the way of your prosperity. And they give entire sermons telling Job all of the myriad of things that he must have done to upset God. And Job defends himself for 34 chapters telling his supposed friends that he's done nothing wrong. And that he's done nothing to deserve this cruel punishment. And he's right. And yet his friends don't believe him. Before we conclude Job's story, I just want to examine your story for a moment. Because we've all had bad and tragic things happen to us in life. And perhaps the thought has crossed your mind that somehow you must have done something to deserve this. That you must have done something to exact God's judgment on your life, because otherwise these bad things wouldn't happen. Let's take a health, for example. Perhaps it's a personal sickness, a cancer, a tumour, a disability, diabetes, an ongoing sickness or pain that you just can't shake off, or in this day and age, COVID-19. It's not your fault. What about the health of our loved ones? What if a newborn baby gets sick or is born with a disability? Whose fault is that? Frederick Price, the the preacher that we mentioned earlier, has this to say. He says, children that are born dead had no control over their life, but their parents had that control. However, if the parents do not know the word of God and to claim their rights in Christ, the child suffers the loss. That is a... An evil thing to say to anyone. That is a completely wicked thing to say to people. That the the life of a, a newborn child, the fault of that, the the fault lies on the parents for that. What an evil thing to say to people! It is not the fault of the parents. And in fact, this is the exact same attitude the religious leaders of Jesus' time had. You remember that uh, the. Uh, The disciple Peter, they see a blind man along the road. And Peter, he just regurgitates what the the saying of the time was. He goes, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? Indicating that this blindness, oh, it had to be a punishment from God. Either his parents sinned or he sinned. And Jesus says it was none of their faults. No one was responsible for this blindness. Sickness for yourself or in your family is not your fault. Jesus definitively says this to his disciples. Death in your family is not your fault. What about wealth? Perhaps you got hit hard by the GFC, as many people do. That's not your fault. Maybe you can't afford housing because the prices just keep going up. It's not your fault. Perhaps the bank has done you dirty. Westpac at the moment is in a bit of hot water for taking money away from their clients. It's not your fault. Emergencies keep coming up in life that require us to chew into our savings bit by bit. We can't prevent that. It's not your fault. And what about our happiness in life? What about the relationships that we have? If our marriage is struggling... If there's been divorce, if your spouse has cheated on you, perhaps you don't have the relationship that you want to have with your children. Perhaps during your childhood you suffered abuse or neglect by your parents. Perhaps you're surrounded by a family that doesn't support your faith and beliefs. Rest assured that it is not a judgment from God. You didn't do anything to deserve this. God's not trying to punish you. It is not your fault. Depression, anxiety, sadness, these things are not as a result of a lack of faith in God. One of the greatest men of faith and of devotion to God, the prophet Elijah, he was so despaired that he asked God to take his own life. And yet God did not give up on Elijah. Perhaps we've experienced trauma or abuse in life. It is not your fault. So if bad things happen to us, and it's not because of a lack of faith or because of disobedience to God, then why do bad things happen in this life? Well, the reality is that we live in a sinful, fallen, broken world. Tragic and devastating things happen to all people all the time. Sickness, death, sadness... Sorrow, poverty, all of these things will happen naturally in a world that is unfortunately stained and marred by sin. And the cruel reality is that evil does not discriminate against those who are faithful to God and those who are not. Now, sometimes God does mercifully and miraculously intervene in our lives and spares us from evil. But at times where that doesn't happen, we cannot think That it's because we've done something to upset God. We cannot think to ourselves that God does not love us anymore or that he has abandoned us. We cannot think that it's somehow because we had a lack of faith. Bad things happen all across the world to all people all the time. And we cannot interpret that as God abandoning us or no longer loving us. So, how does the story of Job end? Well, God restores to Job double of everything that he lost. And I don't think we can take away from that that God will always restore double to us the things that we've lost in life. I think what we find here is an extraordinary situation. The story of Job is extraordinary. And it, it was an event which God used to teach us a lesson. And so while I don't think that God is going to immediately restore to us double of everything we've lost here in this world, I do think it points to a future hope that we have. I'd just like you to turn with me to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 in verse 4. And this is the promise, this is the the future hope that the ending of the story of Job points us towards. Revelation 21 verse 4. And here John is writing about a new heaven, and new earth that God is going to recreate where there is no more evil or sin in the world. Here's how he describes it 21.4 God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This is a world in which God has completely eradicated sickness, pain, and death. And this is a time that we can look forward. To where God will restore to us the things that we do tragically lose in this life here on earth. Amen. This is the future hope that the story of Job points to. So, how do we get to enter into this kingdom? How do we get to experience this new heaven and new earth that God is preparing for us? Well, if we think about Jesus in heaven, he had health, wealth, and happiness. And yet, he gave up all of those things for you and for me. Jesus takes on himself a gruesome death on the cross. Not so that we can have physical riches here and now, but but so that we can have the spiritual riches which he himself abandoned in heaven for us. You know, I've been saying a lot this morning that it's not your fault. And that's right. But there is one thing that we are to blame for. That one thing is the death of Jesus. Jesus would not have had to come and die on the cross were it not for us and our sin. That is the one thing that is our fault. And yet, Jesus, he not only gives up everything in heaven for us, he not only dies on the cross because of our mistakes, But then he turns to us and he asks us to accept the sacrifice he has made. If someone, you know, did something, uh, put themselves in a situation that required me to have to sacrifice something, I don't think I'd be as generous as Jesus is. I think I'd tell that person, scram, you've caused me enough trouble already. And yet the very thing which is our fault and that made Jesus have to go to the cross, he says, don't worry about it. I've got it covered. I'll take care of you. I've got mercy and forgiveness, grace and love for you. What a loving God that we serve. So this morning, I just want you to take comfort in these two things. Firstly, take comfort in knowing that all of us will experience hardship and trials in this world, but that God has not abandoned you. God is not angry or enraged with you. He's not punishing you for your lack of faith. Bad things happen to people all the time in the sinful, broken world. And it's not a sign of God no longer loving us or abandoning us. He is with us even through our trials. And secondly this, take comfort in knowing that the creator of the universe will one day recreate this world to be a place free of pain and suffering. I hope that this morning you will make that decision to be there on that day when God makes a new and perfect heaven and earth.